From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? This season, we're getting the band back together with heist films, where a mastermind hatches an elaborate, usually non-violent plan to get a MacGuffin from a difficult location with the help of two or more specialists. The plan may include one or more cons, hacks, or burglaries, but is rarely exclusive to just one of these. Traditionally, the movie viewer is rooting for the heist crew. I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And today, we're talking 2001's Ocean's Eleven, which is a reimagining of the 1960 Rat Pack film of the same name, but different spelling. The screenplay was written by Ted Griffin uh, and was directed by Steven Soderbergh and starring... George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, Andy Garcia, Don Cheadle, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Elliot Gould, Bernie Mac, and Carl Reiner, among others. <laughs> this conversation will contain spoilers. You have been warned. And you just passed the first step of this heist, which is getting that cast list out, because wow. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah, one of the reasons we select something like this, you got a lot to choose from. Oh my god, so much to choose from. But before we get to that, Drew, we like to start off, this is a podcast about movies and role-playing games. Uh, so we like to talk about movies and role-playing games and podcasts. So Drew, uh, we'll keep it to just one this week and, and dive a little further in in our intermission. Uh, what's a movie that you have recently watched that you'd like to talk about? Uh, so for the month of November, I am watching all of David Cronenberg's movies in chronological order. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is a bit weary on the soul. So uh, the movie <laughs> I want to talk about is Paddington 2, uh, a film <laughs> I had to watch. It's a masterpiece. Uh, it's a masterpiece. Now, we have discussed Paddington 2 uh, after discussing the massive weight of tremendous talent or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, we had that brief discussion. But uh, watching Cronenberg, and I'm I'm very much enjoying that, but uh, I needed to balance that. Uh, so I watched Paddington 1 and Paddington 2, and Paddington 2 is just a delight. I'm not going to say any more than that. I'm just going to say this to anyone who, like Rafe, has not seen it. Watch Paddington 1, watch Paddington 2, even though they are neither Thanksgiving nor Christmas movies as we were approaching those holiday seasons. It is a very good, feel-good film. Uh, it is joyous from start to finish. Both of them are. Uh, and... Uh, when the third movie comes out, if it ever comes out, if it is even remotely close in quality, these three, it may be the greatest trilogy of all time. <laughs> I'm saying that without the third movie even coming out. Uh, and now I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings and I, I might have to uh, recant that. Second we'll greatest see. trilogy. Yeah. Second, the second greatest trilogy of all time. How about you, Rafe? What have you watched? I have watched uh, The Marvels. Despite it having a dismal box office, my son and I went and saw it on opening weekend, as we do with uh, Marvel movies, because I want to see it before any of the spoilers hit the internet. Yeah. And I have to say, um, shut up, haters. Like, it's like, I get that the MCU has gone kind of down a dark hole, especially as we got into Endgame and, you know, getting rid of some characters and that kind of stuff. And we've, we've had some heavier Marvel stuff. And one of the things I loved about Ms. Marvel when it came out was on the heels of Spider-Man No Way Home. I, I needed something that was a little lighter and a, a little easier to enjoy. And, and Ms. Marvel totally 
gave me that. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. And I feel the same way about the Marvels. It's a great continuation for uh, that character, but also for Captain Marvel. And there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, Brie Larson looks bored. And I'm like, no, she looks traumatized, which is exactly what her character is. Now, it is not without its flaws. It has a couple of errors that I uh, would would love to uh, go off on on long tangents, but I'm not going to do that here. But <laughs> I had fun watching it. And to me, that's what the MCU is. And if you want the darker stuff, hey, Loki just ended. It was a fantastic run as well and has one of the most satisfying conclusions uh, for a Marvel project uh, probably since Endgame. But uh, no, the Marvels was a lot of fun and I'm glad that I went and gave them my money and I'm sorry the box office isn't doing so well for it. But that's what happens when you release a major project without being able to have most of the talent promote it because of, you know, the ongoing uh, now finally concluded uh, Screen Actors Guild uh, strike. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. That's my number one film to watch up until, I guess, two weeks from now when Godzilla Minus One enters the theaters. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm getting ready to get onto a Godzilla kick because uh, the, the Monarch series just started on Apple TV, which I have to renew my Apple TV, which isn't a bad time of the year to do that because Spirited with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell was a really good Christmas movie, so we'll get to revisit that. But uh, yeah, I'm getting ready to go into a deep, Godzilla kick to get caught up with the uh, whole Monarch storyline. Well, yeah. Plus you're looking at your role-playing games for right. the, uh, the Kong Skull Island stuff. And speaking of role-playing games, uh, any, anything new on the role-playing game front that you'd like to talk about? Uh, I, I don't really have a ton there. Uh, sadly, uh, I've gotten some Kickstarters in that I've gotten to sit down and kind of gloss through. Uh, my group uh, has not gotten to meet in several months. Uh, we're finally going to have our first session from several months about a week from now, which I guess I need to figure out where the story is going. <laughs> That's the problem with D&D is it's a little harder to make it up on the fly. So, yeah, uh, not as much on the RPG side for me right now. How about you, Drew? Well, I just had my second kids on bike session with some teenagers at my uh, library uh, RPG club. It's interesting. Uh, they did not grasp that Kids on Bikes is not Dungeons and Dragons. It is not a combat oriented game. So that was tricky. Um, right. But by the end of it, I think they started figuring out just in time for us to be doing Dungeons and Dragons, a Christmas themed Dungeons and Dragons for uh, next month. Nice. I, I just pulled out all my ugly Christmas sweaters, which they have insisted that I bring so that they can wear during during the game. <laughs> it is going to be a 10 person D&D game Ooh. called the 12 Rounds of Candle Nights. Uh, where each round a challenge based around the song will exist. Um, I'm finally going to be able to use my six-headed goose hydra miniature uh, for that one. Um, but more importantly than that, uh, my youngest brother is going to be playing his first game of Dungeons and Dragons, his first role-playing game ever. Nice. Um, by the time this episode airs, he will have already done so. And so it's been really fun just sitting down and chatting with him about character design and how the game works and kind of what kind of stuff he wants to do. So it was really good, you know, like you know, almost 50 years of, of gaming experience. I finally get to, a, he's finally interested in having that conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. I have uh, last year, my group did a special Christmas themed episode. Uh, and so they want to do a Christmas themed adventure this year as well. And I have probably procured a dozen to pick from. <laughs> right. No, I, and I have some really good ones if, if you'd like to, just in case they listen to the podcast, I won't mention anything. <laughs> Speaking of podcasts, uh, any, listening to anything? I uh, have added a new one to my uh, very short list of podcasts. Uh, one of my guilty pleasures way back in the day and something that has been rekindled in the last year is Survivor. Uh, I originally started watching Survivor after the first season, after it became like this nationwide phenomenon, because, you know, I was 
studying production and I wanted to see what production on something like that was like. Like, how do you craft a narrative out of three days of footage of people laying around a camp? And then I admit I got into the show itself. Well, they have started an official podcast. They did this, I think, last season uh, with Jeff Probst called On Fire. It is the official Survivor podcast. And each week they release an episode where three of them, Probst and then the producer and a former participant, talk about what happened in that episode. So you get the vantage point of the producer, the player, and the fan. And it's a really well-done podcast. And uh, like there are, have been already several episodes where I watched the episode. And I was like, God, I hope they talk about this this on the podcast and they do. And so it's been really kind of fun to, to get that, that pull behind the curtain and see how things are run, but also see what other things geek, other people geek out about. Yeah. And I really like the idea that there's a mix of hosts for that. So you get a different perspectives. Um, The good place, the podcast had a similar format and they went through every single episode for all three seasons. And the amount of information I know about the production of that, that show, one of my top five favorite shows of all time uh, is really exciting Uh, for me. Uh, I, you know, I like listening to a lot of gaming podcasts and a lot of movie podcasts, and I was recently introduced to a uh, podcast. It's only been out for about two and a half years uh, called What Went Wrong, and essentially it's uh, the idea is that um, it's a miracle that any good movies are ever made because yes. of how tricky it is to produce a film. And so they go through the history of it and they deep, they dive a little deeper than Wikipedia articles, right? They'll read um, actors, journals and directors, journals and books and uh, and just go in through all sorts of stuff. And um, it's great. So, you know, like I, I recommend their three part Lord of the Rings trilogy was really good, but even think something like The Princess Bride was quite excellent and nice. uh, Dune. Um, it's two hosts. They they're they're pretty pretty clever, um, and it's an hour, so you get a lot of information in a very short period of time, and it will also quote a lot of the sources. So if you want further reading materials, those are available to you. So if you're a film nerd like we are, um, that is perfect. I will have to check that out. All right, Drew. Well, let's get to the topic at hand. Our first heist film of our second season here, uh, and you picked Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, I did. Phenomenal pick. To, right. to start off this. I mean, it's 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 the best. But we're going to start with a simple plan. You're going to give us a simplified version of the movie's plot. And here yeah. is where we're going to get into spoilers, folks. So I uh, hope you've seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of prison, Danny Ocean reaches out to his right-hand guy, Rusty Ryan, to help him rob not one, but three major Vegas casinos, all owned by Terry Benedict. The take? 150 plus million dollars. Now, to do so, they're going to need a financial backer who has no love for Benedict. Ocean and Ryan will assemble a crew and proceed to scout the hotel for weaknesses. The plan is to take the money on the night of a big boxing event. Things seem to be going well until it's discovered that Benedict is dating Tess, Ocean's ex. The crew, suspicious of Ocean's motives, drop him from the plan. The night of the fight, Ocean confronts Benedict, who has him taken to a room to be beaten. Rusty calls Benedict, informs him that they are in the vault, and if Benedict doesn't let them walk away with half of the money, they will destroy all of it. Benedict lets the crew take the half, but he has his people follow the getaway van. He also calls the Vegas SWAT team to secure the vault. There is a shootout, and all of the money is destroyed. Meanwhile, Benedict's people follow the getaway truck to the airport, only to find that it has been driven remotely and is not filled with cash. We get to see, in flashback, how the crew has pulled off this incredible heist before returning to Benedict confronting Ocean, who has an airtight alibi. But during the exchange, which is being watched uh, via television by Tess, Ocean says that he can find out who took that money if Benedict will drop Tess, to which Benedict agrees. 
We see the crew watching the Bellagio fountains before heading off on their own. Danny gets to go to jail for parole violations and upon release in three to six months is met by Rusty and Tess. And the film ends with Benedict's people following the trio, making room for a sequel. <laughs> right. A, a not as good sequel, but a sequel nonetheless. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit all, it kind of hit all the key points there. So, Drew, why did you choose this film? There was no choice. Um, you picked Goonies because it's the epitome of of the kids on bike genre. I feel that Ocean's Eleven is the epitome of the modern ice caper. Um, it has an amazing array of specialists for us to draft. It's very important for us, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And honestly, probably going to be the most difficult film to gamify, owning that so much of the action takes place in flashback. But this is one of those films where I think it sort of reinvigorated the heist genre uh, around this time. So, you know, it's so funny when we were first introducing this, I, for the life of me, thought this film came out in 1999. There's so many great films came out that year. Yeah. I thought this is one of them. So as I was saying it uh, in the last episodes, I hesitated before I said 2001s because I'm like, that doesn't seem right. But post 2001, we get a, a lot. And there was a couple of heist films, really good ones that came out slightly before that one. Um, maybe we'll talk about them. So I'm not going to mention them here, but we got a lot more of them afterwards. Uh, and I think... This is a a lot of people, especially people like R.H. or Younger's introduction to the heist genre. And so as we start to explore the genre in different decades, what a heist is changes. But what I love about the genre is exemplified in this film, um, which is, you know, have a plan, a cunning plan uh, and have the specialist to pull it off. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, when did you watch this movie for the first time, Drew? I mean, I saw it in theaters. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you. At the time this came out, Soderbergh was in my top three uh, favorite directors of all time. I don't know. Do you ever see his um, Kafka film? No. Has never been released on DVD in the United States. Mm. Uh, I still have my VHS of it. Uh, I had to buy a VHS player at Goodwill just to, just for the, the, the sole purpose of watching that movie. It's the only VHS I think I have anymore. But, you know, Sex, Lies, and Videotape was a, a huge influential film on me really early on. And and I think it was the first film that made me not only inspire me to want to be a filmmaker, but also showed me that I could be a filmmaker. Yeah, no, I watched everything Soderbergh had, had done leading up to this film. So as soon as it came out, I watched it. And I probably watched it three or four times in, in theaters. How about you? Uh, I did not see it in theaters. 2001 was actually a quite, quite a terrible year for movies. Uh, and I got burned quite a bit on seeing some movies that like I was looking forward to. And none of them ended up being very good. Stuff like, you know, Pearl Harbor and Evolution and Tomb Raider. And so uh, there was, there's kind of a point where I just kind of... And I, the, the shame of it is I saw the wrong movies because stuff like A Knight's Tale was 2001, which I so didn't good. go because it got such terrible reviews and it's one of my all-time favorite films. So I did not see this in the theater, but I did see it pretty quickly after it came out on home video. Like, I, I own the DVD of it. And I will say, Drew, uh, watching this again to prep for the podcast, I really then wanted to put in 12, uh, which I don't own because I didn't like it. So I have 11 and I have 13 and the completionist completionist inside of me dies a little bit every time I look at that part of my DVD collection. I think I have multiple copies of it. So I'll, I'll be more than happy to, <laughs> to give you one for Christmas. Uh, I, you know, a DVD Blu-ray. I think I have a, um, 
all three of them in one set. Uh, Oceans, the Oceans trilogy is one of those trilogies or just even DVDs in general, where if I find it used, say a Goodwill for a couple of bucks, like especially if I can find all three of them in one set, I'll go ahead and buy it because it's a great Christmas present. It's just great if someone's not seen it. Now, of course, people just don't want physical media. They are fools. Except for this isn't streaming for free anywhere, except for uh, AMC. Oh, yeah. And that's like, yeah. by default, like I have all the major streamers i have subscriptions to all the major streamers amc is not one of them <laughs> well again this is the reason why i own 2000 plus dvds sure. uh you know i'm using dvd as an umbrella term i want to watch this movie and i should, i'm gonna say i watch this movie my wife and i watch this film every single year oh it's a great movie it's it's one of those that when i had cable if i was flipping channels and this was on that's where i stopped you know it's a real hard film to pass by when it's yeah. on TV. And, and I'm kind of surprised that you're watching films in 2001, people weren't reviewing it well, because it's a fairly well-reviewed film. I didn't say it wasn't reviewed well. I said uh, there were other movies that I got burned by. But yeah, I mean, it sits at 83% on the tomato meter at Rotten Tomatoes, with an audience score of 80%. So it is a well-liked film, and sure. and well, it should be. So let's get into our kind of review of the film, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. What are the highlights what are the bad bits? What are the worst bits? Uh, Drew, give me something good about this movie. Well, I'll, and I, you know, we kind of alluded to this right at the very beginning. The cast for this film is so exceptional. I mean, there are so many good stars in this film. You would think it was a Robert Altman film, right? Like mm -hmm. it's got one of those ensemble casts where everyone who is in it, you can't imagine anybody else in that part. I have never read nor listened to anything that has talked about the origins of this movie. So I don't know if, you know, someone was originally selected to be one partner or another and couldn't make it. But I think everyone they got for every single part, regardless of, of who they are in this movie, is excellent. But in particular, the chemistry between George Clooney and Brad Pitt is phenomenal. It is palpable. And you can tell that both of them are friends. Like oh, yeah. they just come across as being not only friends, but trusted work associates, which I know friends is a better option, but in this business, really like right. you know that they each one of them independent of each other can count on each other, which is why Clooney's like that kind of complication in the middle of the film hurts Rusty so much because he thought he could trust right. uh, Danny and this is this is skewing from the plan. It throws a wrench in the works. Absolutely. No, I did I completely agree with you. The chemistry between between all the cast, but especially the two of them, is quite phenomenal. And it's it's just a delight to watch from the moment that they first meet back up in the middle of that poker game with the cele Hollywood celebrities. Uh <laughs> you know, I mean, just from that moment on, it is just and that's one of my favorite exchanges of dialogue. And it isn't even an exchange of dialogue, but it's the all right, that's ten. You think we need one more? You think we need one more? We need one more. Yeah. All right. And, let's get one more. And it's like, and and but the the part of the reason that exchange works isn't just Clooney's delivery of the lines. It's the, it's Pitt doing nothing, and yet just the rapport between the two of them just works so well. Yeah. And the other thing, I just want to bounce off of that. One of the things that the two of them do, in you know, the example that you gave, um, Pitt doesn't say anything, and that right? works great. But in this film and in the other two films. They frequently will finish each other's sentences in mm -hmm. in a in a way that is so natural that you feel like they really are on the same level, um, and that's important, right? Because when we start getting into the usual suspects on what their jobs are within a crew, uh, you have to be able to be on the same level. 
Right. If, if you want the, the, the heist to succeed. I'm going to bring my good thing, uh, which is kind of almost the opposite of what you just brought up. Um, and that is because you watch this movie and it is very easy to get caught up with Ocean's Eleven. It is, you know, the, the crew, the rapport, the way they bounce off of each other. And over here on the left side, you have poor Andy Garcia not getting to have the time of his life interacting with all of these other people, but putting in such a wonderfully understated performance. It so easily would have been possible to go over the top playing this as this villainous, you know, just huge part. And instead it is, he's understated. He is subtle. He's calm, uh, which is in a lot of ways, calm sometimes can be scarier than loud and yelling and raging and stuff. And that's one of the things I absolutely love is the moment that, that that phone call he has with, with Rusty, about taking the money and he says, oh, you know, I have a request, you know, be cautious. If I find out that you've spent this on a car, I'm going to be really disappointed. And like that, that, but he's that way throughout the entire movie. It's a yeah. beautiful performance from an actor who doesn't get enough credit because he's not part of the fun part of the movie. Yeah. And I think when we start talking about the truth and the gamification aspect of this, how he handles things is really important to the feel of the overall game. When we start looking at yeah. it, he is competent. And there's nothing more terrifying than a competent foil. And I don't want to call him the bad guy, right? Like he, we, people are stealing from him in many ways. You know, the caper crew are the villains of this. They are robbing somebody, but we, again, as the audience, we are rooting for them. Uh, Terry Benedict is someone you do not want to mess with. And we do get to see that. But when we start looking at the surveillance portion of this movie, we learn about Terry Benedict that he remembers the names of all of his employees. Mm-hmm. He checks in with everybody. He is good at his job. He takes it very seriously. He's very punctual. He's learning languages just so he can compete with, you know, everybody or, or, or compliment uh, his high stakes rollers. I mean, this is someone who's really good at their job. I enjoy someone who is good at their job. That is what makes a specialist so appealing. Uh, right. Any movie where you get to see someone who's good at their job is a better film. And one of the reasons I think, and again, we're not really supposed to be talking about the other movies. One of the reasons I think we're let down by the sequel to this is that it is not a movie about Ocean's Eleven. It is more of a film about one or two members of that crew. A lot of the other members fall to the wayside. What I think is exceptional in this film is the script, Um, not only in the non-linear way it's told in the flashbacks and how much it keeps us as the audience guessing. Even though I see this movie, like I said, Every year, and I've seen it three times this year, I still sometimes forget the little subtle nuances that the script allows us to go into. Um, and there's moments in this where you're just kind of like, this is so very good. And the thing that the script does in this one is it allows every single one of the specialists, we get to see them be good at their job. Right. Every single one of them, there's a reason you don't just bring them in because they're good actors and it's going to be good to sell the movie um each and every single person we get to see why their job is key to making this work and if any one of them you know you forget one of them you don't get it like the oceans if it's oceans 10 the heist is not successful right i mean yeah even linus who is you know kind of the the one that's getting picked on incessantly throughout the movie you know because he's new he's he's still wet behind the ears but he still gets to show off his skills in, in several scenes. You know, it's like there's, yeah. there's a reason why he's a part of this team. And yeah, I think you're right. I think that's part of why the second one doesn't work as well. And they fix that with the third one. And that's part of why I think the third one is 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 an exceptional on par with this one type movie. Yeah, agreed. 
Yeah, uh, you know, but like one of the things too, and again, talked about the other ones. Um, Thirteen doesn't work if you don't have eleven. Like you know, like right. I don't think that one stands. Right. No. It, no. It, it definitely spends so much time. It's and that what makes it a really good trilogy is you get the build up and the characters build up here, so you don't have to rely on that as much. It's just right. of the three, this is the one that I think does everything that we want. Is there anything bad with this film? Well, I mean, if, if you'd asked me back in the day, my answer would have been George Clooney, because I did not like George Clooney for the longest time. In fact, on my, my very old podcast, I used to refer to him as Chickenhead Clooney, because when he talked, he would move his head, he would bob his head back and forth. If you watch Batman and Robin, it's particularly heinous in that film. But the truth is, this was one of the movies that kind of converted me on George Clooney. So I can't even say that. I, I have an ugly, but I don't have a bad really per se. I don't I don't think maybe maybe the fact that they use casual racism as kind of a, a joke at one point, but that's about it. Right. The Jim, the Jim Brown. We'll, right. we'll get to that in, in a second. Yeah, I think it I think it still works. I mean yeah, I think so do I. So yeah, I, and and I think what's interesting too is the casual racism part is it shows how someone who is apparently intentionally trying to avoid that still uses it, which is a problem, right? Like right. it's 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 well done. I think if there's a bad, uh, it might be that this is kind of a boys' film, right? It's it's designed for a particular audience because the 1960s. It, it is a riff on the original. Uh, have you watched the original, the, the Rat Pack version? I have the original. Don't have twelve. Have the original. <laughs> it's fine yeah, um, it's problematic <laughs> it's really problematic um and i think what they're one of the things is they are doing a modern version of that they are trying to address the problematic bits within it the, the thing that i kind of missed in this one is like okay this is a boys club this is a film about a group of boys it's kind of a boys fantasy heist film it would have been nice to see more women on the team but i also feel like that's just not that kind of movie no. Like, you know, there are some films, we, you and I have talked about The Thing, there are no women in that movie, but it's designed to be that way. I don't think it's a lapse in judgment. It's not a racist thing. It's not a sexist thing. It's just, this is the film that it is. And I don't think it's something that anybody needs to apologize for in general. So, yeah. yeah. No. So, Ugly, what you got? Well, the Casey Affleck being in the cast is, you know, not a great thing over time. Uh, you know, at the time it was fine. Now it's, but he's a smaller part of the cast. And I mean, yeah. he, he, he and, and Khan re really work well together. So they're enjoyable. But given all the things that have happened with him over the past, you know, 20 years, uh, it's a little less enjoyable for me than it was when I first saw this movie. Yeah, I get that. At the time, I don't think anybody who was who's in the role was was under that kind of like. Uh, that spotlight. Sure. So yeah, I, I agree. I, I watched a film recently th with James Woods in it. And it's, you know, the only reason I didn't consider that film to be better than it was is, you know, it's kind of hard to, to watch stuff like that. I get it. And that's, and that's really on us more than the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got nothing ugly. Like I, I, I was, you know, setting up for this going, I have nothing bad to say about this film. Yeah, and no, I, because yeah, it's I feel a great like a, movie. It's a great movie. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about the usual suspects. There's, it's you know, it's great for a reason. It's got an amazing cast. It's got an amazing script. This is a love letter to the heist genre. So one of the things that we're going to do, especially becomes important when we start drafting or start creating our heist teams, is that we need to know who does what on the team. So right. we're going to go over uh, who the character is, who the actor is who played it, and what their role on the team is. Clearly, starting with number one, we've got George Clooney as Danny Ocean, and they are a con artist, but more importantly for this, they are the mastermind they are. for this 
game. Uh, yeah, and one of the the better masterminds that I, I, you know I can think of. Yeah, he's he's exceptional as job, but he is, as you said, he is. You know, you brought up during our zero session that that the mastermind typically has their own specialty as well, and and his is con artist. You know, he, he yeah. got he got busted for that. Yeah, right. Yeah, we, we've already talked about him before. Rusty Ryan, played by Brad Pitt, um, he is the right hand man. But that's more importantly, um, Rusty is. It's an interesting job, and there's a, we're going to see this in a couple of other films. He's also a con artist, right? But he's more of a fixer. He right. knows people, and he's really good at organizing. So he's the one who does a lot of the legwork between the rest of the party. So like, if anybody on the team has an issue, you turn to Rusty, even before Danny, especially after Danny's kind of supposed turn midway through the, the movie. And and I would argue that Rusty is actually so well skilled as a mm-hmm. character that he probably could be a mastermind as well. Except for we also know that he isn't because when Danny goes to prison, he does not keep the crew rolling. He does not keep jobs going. He just goes off on his own and does the you know teaching kids poker thing. Right. Yeah. He's too busy eating in yes. every scene, and that's actually one of the that. things that we don't really talk about, yeah, I think is also good, is just the humor, the casual humor and the sight gags, and the fact that this is, and I don't know, I have to look this back up, is this the film that got Brad Pitt started in the, I'm going to be eating in every scene in every movie? I um, think so. Because that is, if you tell me Brad Pitt, what is the signature thing that you know about a Brad Pitt film? He likes to eat movies, and I, God bless him, I love him for that, because uh, I find it charming as all get out. Well, and one of the things that this movie enlightened me to, uh, a film critic friend of mine pointed out that Brad Pitt is exceptional as part of an ensemble and mm-hmm. tends to be weaker as a leading man. And sure enough, this this movie yeah. is proof that, man, you put him in an ensemble with people he can act against, and he's great. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Frank Catton is played by Bernie Mac. Uh, and Frank is a con artist, um, has clearly worked with Danny. In fact, one of the things that I kind of f- I forget about is that Danny goes to see Frank before he even finds Rusty. Right. Like he's the first person he reaches out to on the crew. Um, and for this, uh, Frank is our inside man, right? So he's a croupier. But uh, one of the things that we see frequently in these heist films, we may cover this, um, is the inside man or inside person, whoever the insider is isn't always revealed really early on. So we get to kind of look behind the curtain and see how you get placed into an institution. Sometimes we don't get that reveal until the third act where someone just kind of like appears and you're like, oh, they were with them the entire time. That's brilliant. Then that's the way they play it in Ocean's 8 is they don't reveal that there's an inside person until late in the movie and the audience is supposed to go, oh, which I did. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. All right, so Elliot Gould, God bless Elliot Gould. He's so good. Ruben Tishkoff, um, one of the things that's it's maybe a little less sexy part of a crew, but you know, a crew is not going to be able to pull off the heist unless they've got money to do it. Uh, Ruben is the backer. Um, not only is Ruben a backer, but Ruben is also very similar to Rusty in many ways. He's sort of got those connections. He's kind of a fixer as well. Um, he is old Vegas royalty, and so you kind of need that in order to and we get to see a little bit more of Ruben in the other two films but for this one he's mainly just setting people up with people he knows and then and the money uh, he's got his own reasons too and that's really nice he he has some motivation with that one uh we mentioned Casey Affleck and Scott Conn already so they are the what they call the Mormon twins right so Virgil and Turk Malloy it's an interesting way to just to kind of label them within the usual suspects I have seen, I've read a couple of articles trying to figure out like, how, wh- what do we do with them? They're good at engineering. They're good at driving. So you would say, oh, they're the drivers. Yeah, they're the wheelman. They're the wheelman. 
but they're also the chore men, which means that there's some grunt work. Like it basically, if there's their specialty specialists within, uh, but they're also like, well, something, someone's got to do it. And so they usually have them, which is usually played for comedy. If we use kids on bikes to stat them, they're going to have the unassuming strength because <laughs> you figure you would remember the two argumentative brothers who are showing up multiple, multiple times, just changing their uniforms. It happens in all three of the movies and no one seems to catch on. The fact that they're playing the guys arguing about the balloon and in each other's face and not like two, three days later, they're showing up as uh, security guys without the, oh, he forgot his badge. And it's like, how did you not connect? You would remember like, that. And it's 30 feet away from where they did the balloon <laughs> thing. <laughs> right. All right. So uh, Livingston Dell is play uh, uh, Eddie Jemison. Uh, and they are the gadgeteer. They're the tech person. They're a hacker. Uh, also, which is kind of interesting, it doesn't really come into play, but they also have government connections, which is kind of cool. So communications, electronics, and surveillance. That's what Livingston's going to do for this one. And there's some complications with Livingston, which is kind of interesting. But for the most part, I feel like, oh, I know we get that really good scene. Never mind. I was going to say that they, they don't do as much screen time, but that's not true. No, he has a couple great scenes. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, some some great scenes for him. I I, yeah. I think his his scene where he gets lost uh, <laughs> because they wiped the stuff off of his hand. It's so it's sweaty. One of my oh, favorite yeah. comedic moments of the and the the tension of like, oh, did he just get busted? It is a tense scene. Yeah, and like that really early on, everyone watching this is like, this is over. It's done. But even before it begins. Yeah. Uh, all right, we have uh, Don Cheadle as yes. Basher Tar, uh, who is our engineering slash demolitions expert. I think, I think they use like munitions or something like that in the movie when they talk about him. Sure. Which, you know, not a whole lot of use for, and yet then they come up with the whole pinch thing. Uh, yeah. You know, needing the uh, <laughs> electromagnetic pulse. <laughs> kind of brilliant. Yeah. No, it's really it's really good one. And, and he's a good, he's an interesting character too. I mean, yes, the accent is hideous, but there's a joy to how bad and how much i enjoy that accent oh and the the cockney rhyming slang uh yes. which i didn't i didn't know was a thing when i saw this movie and years later when i learned about it i was like oh barney rubble <laughs> yeah trouble and this is my introduction to it as well yeah, yeah. uh you have the amazing yen uh played right. by keen Sheobo. The, who's our grease man. I mean, he's an acrobat. Right. <laughs> he's he's a little Chinese guy. <laughs> right, yeah, who who just gets, takes the biggest beating um, oh, throughout yeah. this, this film. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, I, I said I haven't listened to anything on the history of it, but I have read a couple of things where this is, they went to a show and said, this guy's amazing. Would you be able to do it? Yeah, sure. You know, not an actor um, can actually do this stuff. They are physically capable of doing it, though I imagine they are probably on harnesses for a lot of those flips just for safety's sake, because oh, sure. we got to take care of your actors. Sure. And, and then one of my favorites, uh, Carl Reiner playing the the uh the kind of the mentor figure uh, of mm -hmm. Saul Bloom who once again is kind of just a standard con artist um he right. is uh he, he is kind of a um disguise artist and not really disguise artist as much but he's able to you know create those characters and such as he does in this it's not just and of course there's the danger of you know you go to a place like Vegas and you've run cons do you get recognized when you're undercover in a different cover <laughs> Saul, Saul, it's me, Bucky Buchanan. <laughs> anyway, so good. And and one of the things that I like too, and we were talking about this um, when we were discussing our draftees for the kids on bikes, is that Saul and in some ways Ruben are both sort of the legends. They're the right. the folks who probably they trained people like Danny and Rusty. So 
they've got their part. So we've got our legends, we've got our veterans, we've got our young protégés in there. So we got a couple of age groups, which is really good too, because we got a generational thing. Um, and I'm sure. really actually kind of glad that at no point in time did they make the kind of very obvious joke that Saul doesn't know how to use computers or, you know, it's like, I don't understand this technology thing. You know, it's like, doesn't matter. It's great. You know, he's no. and, and Carl Ryder. Oh, mm. Right. Uh, speaking of protégés, right? So we got Linus, uh, Linus Caldwell, played by Matt Damon. Kind of their, the 11th of the Ocean's Eleven. He's the the new one. And we find out really early on that he is the son of Bobby Caldwell. So someone who's clearly in the business, even though we don't get to see them in this film, that has a recommendation. And he's a, he's a pickpocket, right? And that, that seems to be his only skill. And you think, how handy is that going to be? And it becomes immensely handy throughout the film. So they, they sure. always find really good uses for it. Well, and he's also really good at, uh, you know, at doing reconnaissance, you know, I mean, right. because yeah, he's the one true. who is paying attention to Benedict and gives them the lowdown on, you know, this man is a machine, but he's also the one who's tracking Danny once there's a suspicion on him. Right. So, you know, he, he is the pickpocket, like that's his game, but he's also really good at going unnoticed. <laughs> Speaking of unassuming. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. So those are our oceans 11, though. There are a couple of um, other folks who, show up in it right so we've got um charmaine who is a stripper at one of the local clubs who acts as a distraction and, and kind of pulls uh, that's kelly atkins plays that one pulls the car off of a guy bruiser um scott schwartz he's the the muscle and while they are not part of the team team again this is what you we see rusty becomes really important right where he knows these connections he all can kind of what is the word i'm looking for my brain's saying mine it out to somebody but it's not um oh outsourcing outsource there you go he outsources to to, to minor characters for their help you know there's the other characters in the movie topher grace plays topher grace uh he is just simply there to make uh rusty and danny look good i guess i mean it's a great it's a great part. We get Tess. I love the oh. fact that it's a game of four young Hollywood celebrities, and the only one you highlighted is Topher Grace. <laughs> Listen, I hate to say this. He's the only one I recognize. The Mighty Ducks, Charlie? Never seen The Mighty Ducks. Oh, true. I've never seen The Mighty Ducks. I know. It's Emilio Estevez, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I it, it's It's a film that came out after... Uh, I was kind of of that age, and I don't have a young child to to show it to. Right. As well, and he also he also was on um, Dawson's Creek, but that we neither of us are the target audience for that show. <laughs> it's true. I've never watched an episode of Dawson's Creek. Um, so yeah, I mean, I recognize that I probably should have recognized who they were, but Topher Grace is also the one that comes back in some of the other films. Right. Um, so he's sort of the one. Like, if you want to select Topher Grace as part of your draft, I suppose he's available. Um, Tess Ocean, Julie Roberts, art expert. We mentioned in the usual suspects um, session zero that like some people act as distractions. Tess is kind of a distraction in a bad way uh, for for Danny. And then of right. course there's you know the the foil is Terry Bendick played by Andy Garcia, who if you were to see them in a movie would be you know in this one they're the mark, but it is possible in future films maybe someone like this could be a backer um, to help supply money for for future uh, heists. But but to backtrack just a second. You you said Tess is the distraction. She's also the MacGuffin. She is. You're right. You're absolutely right that she <laughs> is the MacGuffin. Sometimes they're going to have to steal two things, right? Right. So. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about complications, Drew, because these are yeah. our favorite, you know, as we mentioned in our Zero session, the, the, the complications that pop up are part of what makes the story fun. And so, like, 
Tess's existence is kind of a complication for everybody because, yes. you know, she is a distraction for Danny. She is ultimately the motivation behind why he's doing this. What, yeah, what other complications just do you absolutely love in this film? Well, we had mentioned, so like one of the things I really like about the script of this is that everyone gets a, a chance to work on their speciality. But with that, there's also complications. Complications are going to play a big part in the gamification too. But, um, you know, really early on, Basher has an issue issue with um the power grid right so right. um the demolition of the hotel uh the demolition specifically of ruben's old hotel causes a power surge they go to look it up and that causes the whole thing where you're going to need to get the pinch right uh, to to deal with the emp for that during that getting the pinch we get the damaged hand for yen yen also gets the case uh on the door of the little his container Right. And then once he gets in, even if that wasn't enough, the bandage from the damaged hand, right? So like Chekhov's bandage gets caught in the door. And if Danny didn't forget his batteries would have blown up yen. Yeah. Uh, Danny forgets his batteries. So that's a complication for Danny. And it's also allows Linus to shine in that. Which is good because all of those that you mentioned for yen are Linus's fault. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Um, but Linus gets to redeem himself with the, the lack of batteries, but also Linus gets a complication for himself too. You know, Danny gets red flagged midway through the film, actually be the beginning of the, the night of the heist. Um, and when they decide that Danny's out, Linus has to take over for his part. But that's not a complication in the way that you're posing it, because what it that's really true. is, is already planned out by Danny and Rusty just to kind of pick on Linus. So really Linus's complication is that he's being initiated into the society because he's the rookie. He's the newbie. Right. And if you were a player, like, you know, if this is the, the game, um, you don't have to know that that was part of the plan. You right. know, if your character is Linus, I'm going to mess with you. And then when it's revealed later, I think in just the way it is in the movie, you kind of get that. Oh, oh yeah. I mentioned already Bucky Buchanan. Uh, recognizing Saul, that's an issue for Saul. <laughs> I think he handles it very nicely. That's something that the, the Molloy brothers get to take care of. Yeah, and then we get towards the end, Tess confronts Rusty, like she figures it out. And I don't think we know that Rusty knows her, but it's this moment where we realize that Tess knows Rusty. So it's one of those reasons why Rusty can't be in the same room as her right. and has to kind of avoid that. And if you go back when you on repeat viewings of this, if when you watch when she first is coming down the stairs and Linus is saying, you know, this is the highlight of my day, Rusty immediately turns and faces the other direction. So she can't see his face as she walks by. Right. Yeah. So that was not part of the plan for him. Uh, we learn a little later that Tess confronting Rusty is sort of part of the plan so he can give her the message to go to the hotel room and watch whatever channel it is right. um, kind of thing. So, yeah, but all of those make for an interesting movie, right? Cause if the plan goes off without a hitch, that's interesting, but kind of boring. And, and one of the things that's key to this film is that the audience has to think that they failed. And then realizing that those failures are in fact successes makes this film fun. It's fun and, and unpredictable, but you know, I say go back and I watch this film so often not an issue, right? Like it's it's pretty good. Yeah. So we mentioned in our description that there's usually more than one con. You know, that may include right. one or more cons, hacks, burglaries. Rarely exclusive to just one of these. And this film uh, demonstrates that beautifully. That the, the, if you look at the playbook of what's going on here, it, and they lay it out. And what I do love is they do that in all three movies. They'll lay out the entire plot of the movie, but it's in terminology that you, as the audience, <laughs> you have no idea half half of it because 
uh, Stoderberg makes it up. You know, it's it's not right. That's true. These aren't actual terms. So, but let's talk about that terminology. Uh, you talk about needing a Boski, a Jim Brown, a Miss Davy Daisy, two Jethros. That part's obvious. Uh, yeah. A Leon Sphinx and an Ella Fitzgerald. What are what not are these only Ella Fitzgerald, mean? the biggest Fitz, Ella Fitzgerald, right, the biggest seen, Ella right? Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. So um, in this one, you know, looking it up, um, Boski is a con where the con person is a wealthy insider who has insider information, right? So that's going to be Carl Reiner's character, right, Saul? Um, and that's a reference to Ivan Boski, who was an insider trader. Um, a Jim Brown is a fight between two characters to distract a third party. Uh, so that is the casual racism that that we see. I shouldn't right. say casual racism. The, the racist remark that we see that gives it, like, you have to set that up I mean, think about how much you have to set that up to get them into that room, into that situation. So much has to happen to get that to work. Miss Daisy, clear reference to driving Miss Daisy, right. but just getting a getaway vehicle that escorts someone or important something to get away. The two Jethros are the Malloys. Right. Uh, that's the obvious constantly. one. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm not a boxer. I don't know much about boxing. I didn't know who Leon Spinks was. And this is, of course, the power outage that happens during the match. But it's an any unexpected disruption to a boxing match. And that is with Spinks beating um, Muhammad Ali. That's the an right. upset during a boxing match. And then I love the Ella Fitzgerald one. One, because I just love Ella Fitzgerald. But the Ella Fitzgerald is any kind of looped recording, right? So that is the the video feed monitor that we're, we're going to get. Uh, that is kind of the major thing of like whether or not we're actually watching the Bellagio vault or not. Uh, and that is a reference to Ella Fitzgerald, Is It Live or Memorex commercial from 1972. And the reason why it's the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever needed is because they're doing the loop, which then when they release it to to show the real footage, it's not the real footage. It's another recording. I know. It's so it's so <laughs> clever. It's so clever. This movie is absolutely clever. Uh, now, one of the things that we had talked about was um, Heisto, uh, the Heistomatic, that we were going to do a bingo um, for this. And I actually have 24 um, potential uh, heist scenarios that, that can be on a bingo card. We're going to do that for the next movie, whatever okay. that next movie is. Just, I have it, it's ready. I'm going to post it along with everything else on our, our social media feed. But I, I think that's going to be really fun. But before we even do that, We've talked about how much we love this film. Let's rate it. I mean, sure. uh, for those who haven't joined us before, whenever we rate, we have a double rating system, right? So we have two axes. How good of a film this is and how good of a film it is within the genre. Rafe, I'm guessing that you are going to rate this film highly. We certainly have had nothing but good things to say about it. How good of a film is this? Uh, it is uh, quite a good film. It is not uh, it, it is not a, a deep movie by any means and i i probably you know rank those higher than this but it, it is as far as like popcorn fair goes it is one of the absolute best it knows what its job is and it it, it does it well so i'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Eight out of ten that is a very fair assessment of oceans 11 well um you know i am known for not saying that there's such things as perfect films uh, it was it was a bit problematic in our kids on bike scenario but I'm still giving it a 10 out of 10. I I think this is a perfect movie. <laughs> and there's our first twist, complication. Drew suddenly believes in a perfect movie. I think this is a perfect film. Uh, I think every aspect of it is working on all cylinders. The fact that I can watch it every single year, I'm still entertained by it, is huge. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, it pains me even to talk about it in a negative light. I'm willing to do so, but it's difficult. The question then becomes... How good of a heist 
movie is it within the genre of heist films how good of it is it and again you know this is our first one so in many ways we are going to be comparing all the other films that we talked to after this to this one so what do you think how good of a heist film is it as far as comparing other movies to this one there's they're not going to be better than this one they're going to be on par with it but it is the best it is a 10 out of 10 heist film i mean there's just yeah. no doubt in my mind about it it is perfectly assembled it it as you said i mean the fact that you know all the twists and turns and can still sit down and watch the movie and i've done the same thing uh repeatedly is it's just entertaining as all get out but all those twists and turns just i, I love watching them unfold even though i know what's coming yeah agreed one of the things that we talked about was heist philosophy, um, a quote from the film that kind of sums up the heist. There's a lot of great quotes there in are. this film, just hands down, just a lot of great quotes. Uh, and then the question becomes, is there one that sums it up? And I, boy, there's like, I think I found like four of them that I think could kind of work really well. Okay. And I mentioned, you know, a couple to you before we recorded and you laughed because the one I mentioned to you is not the one you chose. And I, should I only choose one of these four? Yes, you to have to go with one. You have to go with one. I'll, I'll let you have two. <sighs> okay. All right. So, you know, the obvious one would be Danny's kind of uh, Braveheart speech to Rusty about um, the house winning. Uh, but I don't think it sums up why he's he's doing this. And I think the, the thing that, that kind of makes sense is it's never been tried, right? So even though we don't know, in fact, why he's doing this, but the fact that he says it's never been tried, he's just come out of jail, that seems to be it. Yeah. Um, but I also love, okay, keep watching. In this town, your luck can change just that quickly. Um, and it, it sums up really what we as the audience members are experiencing within the film. It might not necessarily be specifically why do the heist or filling up the heist philosophy, but I think it's pretty good. There's some other really good ones out there. And I'm looking at you and you're you're smiling. So you have another heist quote. So I am about getting ready to to bow to your superiority on this one. What quote do you feel is sums up the heist philosophy? I, I think the that what sums up the philosophy in this movie, uh, what the heist is about more than anything else is in the opening scene. And Danny says, she already left me once. I don't think she'd do it again just for kicks. Because that's <laughs> what he's after. He's not after the $150 million. He's not after Benedict. He is after Tess. That is what he is after because he doesn't think she would leave him again just for kicks. And to me, that sums up the heist philosophy of this film. Interesting. And of course, there's a really good quote that go along with that we've already mentioned it which is rusty going well now we have to steal two things right <laughs> right and i don't think test splits 11 ways um right excellent no i like it all right drew the last part of our movie part of the conversation is uh oh no not the last part well it's our draft but we're before we draft our character we talked about stealing a song from the soundtrack we're both going to create spotify playlists we will put links to that uh, in our show notes and on our social media and such. Uh, but we're both going to create a soundtrack uh, over the course of the season. We're going to steal a song from each movie or a song inspired by the movie uh, to put to our soundtrack. So our first movie, Ocean's Eleven. Drew, what song are you stealing? All right. So I love the idea of stealing a song. This is such a great idea, and I appreciate it. I just want a clarification for, for our listeners. Um, this is not a draft. So if I take a song, um, this is not a song that like I'm stealing from Rafe. Like He can choose that one, too, if he, if he so chooses. Correct. Yeah, um, we can have duplicates on this part. And everything that we're going to put in there is also available. On, Chris is currently available on Spotify. 
Spotify. So you, if you look at the um, Ocean's Eleven soundtrack, there are two songs on the soundtrack that kind of aren't available, probably for legal reasons. So we're not making those choices. Boy, there's some good stuff in here. So David Holmes did the score for it. So there's actual songs, and then there's Holmes's score that are upbeat. We kind of boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of groove to it. It's fun. It's cool. It's energetic. And I'm not choosing any one of those. What I am <laughs> going to choose uh, is a Quincy Jones song called Blues in the Night that is fantastic. And, you know, whenever I do a role-playing game, when I want to get inspired to create a campaign or a session, if I have the time to do so, if I'm actually going to do some sort of uh, planning for it, I always choose a couple of songs first. And that is the the mood I want to create. And I will play towards that. Blues in the Night. Um, you'll be able to follow the links, like Rafe said. Um, listen to it. I imagine a good heist film can play along to that. Um, almost in any scenario, regardless of the system we're using, uh, regardless of the genre. So that's where I'm going with. Plus, Quincy Jones can't go wrong. Sure. Uh, I'm going in a very different direction for mine um, because I'm I'm thinking of my playlist as a whole. And so right. my feeling is if I start off with something too upbeat, then it's going to cause problems as far as the flow of the overall mix. So I'm starting with something very downbeat, but something I love, and it didn't hit me until my most recent viewing of the film, that they they win. They have their victory, and it is not celebratory we are mm-hmm. awesome type music. It is Claire de Lune. Yeah. Debussy's Claire de Lune playing. Danny's being hauled off to prison again. Yep. The rest of the cons all assemble in front of the Bellagio fountain. And then one by one, they go their separate ways while Claire de Lune is playing. And I was like, that's that's my soundtrack. That's where my soundtrack is going to start. It's something very slow and kind of somber. And then it can kick into high gear. I got to say, one beautiful choice. It's a beautiful piece. Um, the fact that neither of us chose Elvis Presley's Liz's Conversation. It was um, close. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, the fact that there was an option to choose an Elvis song and I didn't choose it. Um, I don't know if you know this about me. I'm a huge Elvis fan. I'm a absolutely huge Elvis fan. And I love this song. But I felt that Little Liz's Conversation, just a little too perfect for this movie. Uh, I think it would be very hard to um, separate it from this film versus like, you know, when you hear that song, you're going to be like, oh, that's clearly going to be Ocean's Eleven. Whereas both of the ones that we chose, I feel like it could be slotted in um, to a number of things. All right, Drew, it's draft time. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love this. I love this part. I'm so excited. So to remind our listeners, uh, this season we are drafting a team that will eventually be one mastermind and seven specialists. We will draft the team. We will cull them down. There will be some twists and turns along the way. Mm -hmm. But this is our first stop. uh, And we have a heck of a cast to pick from. We have we have a huge amount of specialists to pick from here. We've got Danny Ocean, who, as we said, is a great mastermind. Rusty could be a great mastermind as well. And what's most important of all, is because Drew picked the movie. <laughs> I get to draft first. You do. And man, Danny Ocean as a mastermind is an incredible opportunity. And like that that's the problem with this draft, which is part of the design of it, is that if I pick a movie that has a mastermind that I absolutely want, I don't get first pick at the draft. Drew could steal that mastermind and then I didn't get him. And here's the opportunity to take Danny Ocean as the mastermind. But I'm not taking him. 
I, I thought really hard about this, and what I've realized is it kind of, it is definitely my gamification theory. I hate to say this, but you know, you can give the players all the clues they want. You can give them all the traps and tricks and that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, if they need to strong arm their way through a puzzle, that they're going to. And for that, I need Basher on my team. <laughs> So I am if I so surprised if I can't get my uh, specialist to get through stuff, Basher can blow it up. <laughs> I love this choice. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, and you've now provided with uh, a number of choices. I know. Um, I am definitely not taking Danny Ocean. Um, wow, that surprises me. It's a, he is a beautiful classic mastermind. But one of the things that I I like is I like when they can think on their feet. Um, the plan is great, but I think there's other there. There are two other masterminds that I'm I'm far more excited about. So for me, there's there were only two possible choices for this one. Um, one was Rusty uh, because I think he's so exceptionally good at being the in between person, mm-hmm. and um, I love the idea of Rusty just eating constantly, like as a sight gag on the right. table. But if I am given this amazing speaking of food buffet of specialists there is no way i am turning down the chance to have carl reiner on a team i am choosing saul bloom there was saul Bloom. (laughs) there was never ever a moments of hesitation and rusty was going to be my backup if you took him but um no no even the temptation to have topher grace on my team just couldn't compete to uh saul bloom so I've got Saul. Danny, if you ask me that again, you will not wake up. <laughs> he's ready. <laughs> he's ready. He's, I think he's ready. So All there right. we go. All right. Basher Tar and Saul Bloom have been taken for our teams. Uh, the beginning of Telsh's, Telsh's 8 and Myers 8 uh, are set up <laughs> and ready to go. When we return, uh, we're going to do some role-playing game discussion. Is this thing on? Angus, can't you see the red light? God, how bad are your eyes? I can see the red light, but no one said to talk. Hi, I am Marie Redgate, and um, this is... Angus McRae. And we uh, fight monsters, because those are real. The boogeyman that you fear, the real, that thing under your bed, is also real. But we're here to fight them. Kick their ass, but, you know, that's close enough. Do you even literally think we should be doing this? I mean, who would believe a couple of uh, monster hunters from a little town called Hendricks, which we're stuck in, thanks to you? Thanks to me. I would have been gone a long time ago if I still had a car. But I guess you shouldn't have drove it off a bridge. We interrupt this bickering to inform you that we are Redgate and Wolf, an actual play Monster of the Week podcast. Wait, wait, wait. Why, Why is it Redgate and Wolf? Should not be Wolf and Redgate. I do all the work. And as she talked about kicking ass, I do that. You wouldn't be able to go anywhere to kick ass if I didn't drive you there. Drive me. You drive me crazy. Find us on your favorite podcast app now. Welcome back. We are now going to discuss how we can gamify the film so that anyone can play a role-playing game session inspired by the movie, regardless of the system that they're using. So we're going to begin with our session zero. What kind of discussions we need to have with our players before we begin playing the game? Now, usually this would include the genre, the ratings, as well as what we don't want to include in the game. I don't have a lot to discuss with this one. It's a fairly unique game. 
But there's a couple of things I think I need to make clear with my players as we're creating our characters, regardless of what the system is. And the first is a successful game, the gaming experience, not whether the players win or lose, but a successful gaming experience is going to depend on the player's ability to turn complications into victories. Their willingness to be playful and creative when things don't go the way they were hoping for, because that's what this film is about, Right, is the idea that you think things are going bad, and in fact, they are not. Um, and I've watched a lot of heist movies in the last couple of months, and this is not unique to this film, but not every film is like that. So I think one of the things that is going to be really indicative of a Ocean's Eleven game is, is just talking to your players and go, look, things aren't going to work, but we are going to, I am going to work as a storyteller, as a game master, uh, I'm going to work with you to make sure that even if things go wrong, we as a group are not going to dwell on that fact. Yeah, And the second part of it is, let's talk about things going wrong. During the planning phase, I think the Game Master should allow players to create potential complications for themselves and the Game Master to overcome, allowing the Game Master, like the audience of the movie, to be surprised by the overall outcome. This is very untraditional, uh, and I think is what makes this kind of gaming session really exciting, in that I don't feel the Game Master should have everything laid out as a perfect plan. I think having complications, but not knowing when those particular complications are going to show up is really good. And I think it would be very clever. Um, and I think maybe like the poker game that we get in the beginning, there is going to be a system where players can up the ante by saying, I want you to give my character more complications. And maybe depending on the system, we create a mechanic where allowing harder things to show up allows for certain bonuses for the end game. Mm, I like that idea. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, we're going to discuss a little bit more about that um, in just a moment. Some of it you have not heard yet because um, I've been working on some stuff on the uh, at home. Um, all right. So now the second is truths um, for those who haven't been on the podcast before. A truth is something that if followed, the game should feel like the movie regardless of the system. So Because because we should emphasize also for people who you know maybe just joining us for the first time, uh, we're, we're not telling you how to run an Ocean's Eleven game. You can sit down, you can watch the plot of the movie, you can scribe down your scenes and that can be that. You don't need us for that. What we are talking about is something that has the vibe that is inspired by. Um, and so that's where you get into your truths is these are the truths of the story. These are the truths of Ocean's Eleven. If you adapt them to your story, then it gets that kind of feel to it. But it does not go beat for beat like the movie. Right. Because if they've watched the movie, then it's no fun, right? Right. So this is a way to create your own Ocean's Eleven regardless of the system. Uh, so first thing, problems should be resolved nonviolently. Um, at no point in time in this movie is a problem solved by killing somebody. Now, admittedly, there is the, sh the quote-unquote shootout, but that is a, a scene that turns out to not have actually been violent. Right. Um, we get that weird, they slide that little hockey puck that maybe it's emitting a gas or some kind of right. sonar. What I think is clever is we we as an audience have no idea what, what that thing is doing. They slide it, they shut the door, they wait until they hear two thumps and they open it back up. It could be anything. Doesn't matter. That's not the point. Right. But it's a nonviolent solution to the problem of the two armed guards with Uzis. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No one no one gets killed in this movie. Yeah. Right. No one no one actually dies in this this film. This is a tricky one for the second one. Um, because I feel like Vegas is very much a part of this film, but 
you know, if you're not playing on Earth during this time, Vegas might not exist. But I still think whatever setting, whatever game that you're playing in should have a Vegas analog. It should be big. It should be bright. It should be gaudy. It should have gambling. You know, so much of this is based around the culture of Vegas that you should consider, regardless of what your system is, a Vegas analog to this. I think that creates a look and feel that is very much Ocean's. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, uh, the old Star Wars role-playing game that one of the adventures uh, one of my friends ran was on like a uh, a cruise, like a, a a luxury cruise, and but yeah. it had a very Vegas analog feeling to it. So you like it goes to what we're saying, regardless of the game you're playing. You can do this in Star Wars. There you go. Yeah, strangely enough, I you played a, play a, a an old bite. <laughs> right, sure. Well, who, um, that was what West End games. Yeah. Yes, that yeah. was West End Games. That was a good I was trying system. to remember it, and I had forgotten until you said that. Yeah, I still have yeah. all those books. Well, what, what's another truth for us? Well, you know, the 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 house is always watching. Somebody is always watching when you're in the the target destination, the Mark's Lair. Cameras everywhere. Somebody is always watching somehow, and that's that's an important part because the players can uh, that can be an obstacle for the players, but that also could be something that they can use to their advantage, as we see in the movie. Yeah, so that's definitely not a a, a bad thing. Agreed. I think that's really good. Um, and also, I, kind of going along with it, it's kind of fun because you know, in my hotel, someone's always watching. That's a a, a narrative point. Another one is um, their description of Terry Benedict. Uh, the Mark, and I'm going to put a Mark in, in quotations here, is, and here's another quote, as smart as he is ruthless. Make your villain competent, because if you have an incompetent villain, you don't need that that plan, right? right? So even though admittedly what they're trying to do is making their way around very complicated vaults with sensors and lasers and pressure things and voice activators, those things don't exist if you're, I don't know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue calling it the mark, isn't smart enough to install something like that. Like there's no challenge in this if uh, there's no, there's no joy in this if the challenge isn't there, right? Because right? it's never been done. Right. It's never been done. You need to give an opportunity for every member of your crew to have a moment to shine. There needs to right. be a, a point in the narrative where each member of the crew has a scene where they get to use their specialty uh, in some capacity. And that's we said that earlier in the movie. That's part of what makes Ocean's Eleven so great is that it does give every single member of the crew the opportunity to shine at some point. Some of them several times, but everybody right, gets that's at least true. one. Yeah. And I mean, this is game masters, especially if you're new to, to running games, this is something that you should do regardless. I mean, your players want to show off their characters, right? They, so we call this a hero moment. You you want to make sure you have a hero moment for all your players, but specifically in this one, because like, like we said earlier in the script, they're going to allow to do that. But at the same time, maybe it's not going to work out for them. So maybe their hero moment comes after a failure, after a complication too. That's the other thing that that we kind of want to do. Uh, so for every complication that ends in failure, crew gets a flashback to demonstrate that it was, quote, all part of the plan. Right. I mentioned this already. I don't think the players or the game master should know how this is going to end. Um, I think you work together as a team because one, I love that as a game master, getting to see how my players unfold uh, the game, uh, especially something like this, where if like I know that you know so and so has been faking it, if everyone talks about how they're faking this, so this is where flashbacks come in really handy, um, and we're kind of like trading in failures for victories works out really well. I think there's one more truth that we need to add. Uh, and again, quote from the movie is the house always wins. 
And we don't, you know, obviously Terry Benedict loses his money in this. But at the end of the movie, as Drew said in the recap at the beginning, Danny gets out of prison again. He's reunited with Rusty and Tess, and they are being followed by Benedict's men. Like, Benedict is still on them. That's what opens the door for the sequel. The house may not have come out on top at the end of this movie, but it's still an active player. And I I think that's an interesting element to bring into a game as well. That, yeah, the players probably want that moment where they defeat the enemy, but that doesn't mean that the enemy's, you know, no longer on the gaming table. Right, yeah. And, you know, setting up a sequel is perfectly fine. I mean, I I think a lot of us like to, I certainly like playing in games where I know that the story, I mean, I do like a complete story story, but I also like that my story and my choices have long-standing consequences. And I think you're right. I think that's actually a really good way of setting it up. And I wouldn't say that it's like the key moment of a movie, right? But it's so subtle at the end, uh, but it definitely works. And again, that's that quote is from the I keep on saying the Braveheart speech, but like, you know, that motivational yeah. speech that he only says to Rusty, like he doesn't really have to uh right convince Rusty of it. He's he's kind of he's kind of down. But um I like that. And it always gives you a great signing off point um, for the next session too. Yeah. So keep the story going. All right, Drew. So those are our truths. What mechanics do we need to consider to run a Ocean's Eleven inspired game? So again, um, this is agnostic, right? You're not, you're, we're not telling you what system you need to be running this for, but there are two mechanics that I think uh, I'm going to steal from other games that I feel you should include. And we have mentioned one of them multiple times, and that's the flashback tokens. Blades in the Dark use this. Um, It's a great mechanic. The idea behind it is that um, you can, in the game, you can take a little bit of stress to do a flashback, and then you have to basically say, okay, um, the, the example I always give to people is, you're being chased by the guards. You jump across a building. You fail your roll to jump across the building. You then decide to use your flashback token to show that earlier in the day, you actually put um, a cart full of hay or whatever it is at the bottom of the thing so that your supposed miss actually is is designed to be there so that you've arrived safely, even though they think that you've been hurt. And that's a great way that flashback tokens can be used. In this game, I want to kind of take that and stretch it just a little bit more. I think everyone starts with a flashback token. I think everybody in the game is going to have the ability to sh- demonstrate that a some something that they failed at was actually part of the plan because that's part of Danny's whole idea. Like, you know, make them think we're on the wrong foot, but we're actually doing the, the, the right thing. It's all part of the plan. Um, and those flashback tokens can be used in that moment, right, to retcon that failure, or post-game to retcon that failure, where we do, you know, oh, you all failed. That's how this ends. As far as everyone's concerned, it's over. Now I'm going to go around the table and you're going to tell me why this is in fact a a victory. And everyone can then, you know, spend their flashback token. They can do it either way. You can either spend it in game to enhance somebody else's. And I, I don't know. I think, I think you could use a flashback token to enhance somebody else's game in the same way that say um, the way the inspiration tokens can be used. Now, when we start talking about systems of play, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the flashback token and why I think it'll work. There's ways of tweaking it, but I think that's really important. The other one is also from Blades in the Dark and that's clocks. Again, Blades in the Dark is not the the first one to create clocks, but I think clocks work really well. One of the things, whether it's Ocean's Eleven or Hudson Hawk, uh, you know, you got a ticking clock. There's a timer that needs to be used. Yes, I am going to use Hudson's Hawk in all of our episodes. Um, you set a task, <laughs> no complaints here. A trigger and a time, right? So let's use a D6 for it. You say, listen, we're going to. Um, it's going to take 
four turns to get this vault open. And there's a lot of other stuff that's going on. So that's your task is getting the vault open. The trigger is uh, a successful roll. So you're gonna need four successful rolls to get that. Um, and for every time you get a successful roll, it goes down to zero. Once it gets to zero, the event happens. It could be good, like the vault opens, or it could be every time you fail a roll, your character makes noise, and after six failures, the alarm finally goes off. So the characters are very aware of what the clock is, and they're very aware of what the triggers are. Sometimes you could do secret triggers too. Um, that's always fun. Maybe they don't know that there are guard dogs around the corner. Maybe they don't know that there's a rival heist crew that's also working on something. You, as the game master, can play around with that but I think it's important that they at least understand what is it they're doing uh, and they can see the clock going down. Maybe part of the mystery and the fun of it is watching how that goes. So for Ocean's Eleven, you might have Benedict will catch on after a certain amount of time. Or uh, maybe you start the clock at 12. Or, well, of course, you could start at 11. Why would you ever start it at 12 in Ocean's Eleven? Um, <laughs> So maybe maybe that's a way you balance the use of too many flashbacks is, you know, you can't use more than 11 of these things in the game. So if you use too many of them, it, it's really stressing the conservation of narrative so that your players don't go too cuckoo banana pants. Because if the entire movie were flashbacks, it would not be as much of a fun experience. I think right. that's, does that make sense? Like, yeah. I think... Um, be conservative with it, but also use it in a way that helps to um, set the idea of, of goals. Sounds good. I mentioned systems of play. This is by hard, by far the hardest thing to do because, you know, when we're dealing with kids on bike genre, there is a perfectly good game called Kids on Bikes that is designed around that. There are, as we had mentioned in our last episode, heist-themed games that work. I have narrowed them down to three because, you know, on our next session, we are going to have to stat our characters based around a game. You know, we use kids on bikes for kids on bikes. What are we going to use for the system? You could use uh, a Ocean's Eleven themed Call of Cthulhu game, Star Wars game. You could do it in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, yes, you could do heist in Dungeons and Dragons. Of course, there's so many. There's a whole heist book for D&D now. But like any of these systems can work. But there's a couple that are really good out there. The leverage role-playing game, if you could find a, a physical copy... <laughs> Let me know, because I would like it um, for less than $200. It's very expensive, but it's very good. It is a little bit limiting in that um, it runs like Powered by the Apocalypse, a great system. But I feel like if it tells you that you're, you're, uh, the leverage game is specifically five different tropes, and as we have listed in our usual suspects, there's a lot more than that. So you could use that, but Everyday Heroes is looking better and better. There's a lot of really great things in that one. It's a fairly new system. The thing that I don't love about Everyday Heroes for this particular movie is that because it is D20 modern, they're still using things like hit points. Right. Um, and I want something that allows our players to be a little bit more abstract. So, um, Rafe, I'm creating my own system. Um, <laughs> now, by, in two weeks, we'll decide which one of these three that I'm going to use. But right now at this moment, I'm actually continuing with the kids on bikes um, system. I'm converting it to a heist slash criminal slash uh, spy game, which I'm calling kids in shades 
I have Doug and John's blessing on this as long as I don't try to sell it. Um, but <laughs> what I love about the system is the GM never has to roll. And so it's always up to the player and the players get to decide what die they're going to use. I love the idea of exploding die. I love the idea that it's a little bit more abstract. The main thing that I'm changing is I'm putting flashbacks as part of the system. And depending on your tropes that you get, certain tropes come with extra flashbacks. So a mastermind is going to come with extras because that's what a mastermind does thinking on the fly. But I love the idea of you tell me, you direct how uh, your character is going to do things. And the other thing too, is I think there's a lot of strengths that exist in the kids on bike genre that don't work in the heist genre and vice versa. So I'm going to, I've been creating a list of strengths. So we're going to see what happens in roughly two weeks. We'll see what happens with that. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of different things that systems that, that could work for Ocean's Eleven. Um, I relisted quite a few. I'm going to throw one more on the table. Um, Please do. That is, even though I haven't finished reading the whole game, um, I did mention a while ago, Stealing Stories for the Devil, yeah. uh, which fits a lot of the criteria that you're talking about here. Um, the players are able to manipulate elements of the game, which ties into kind of your flashbacks idea, uh, as well as them having some narrative control over things. And I think that that would would work um not perfectly but right but it would work well in the same way fiasco is perfect for this kind of thing fiasco is designed to be a coen brothers film so it's it's a little less fiasco is, isn't quite as cool as uh uh as this this movie is um but it's also it is a role-playing game and again one of my favorites but it doesn't quite work as well so i think this does look to uh the individual statted character sheet characters because we are emphasizing specialists is that all we got all right i i have a question for drew time oh yay okay cool okay uh you've mentioned numerous times over the course of this especially with the gamification of giving players narrative control which to many people including myself uh you know old school game masters that's just not a thing that's done you right. you design the adventure and the players you try to take every uh possible deviation into account and prepare for that and uh when all else fails you just throw a dragon at them um but that is definitely a trend that has happened with role-playing games. What suggestions, what advice do you have for uh, giving players narrative control while still maintaining some semblance of control over your game? It's a great question. It's a really complicated one. Um, and the main thing I would say is this is something that you have to address in the session zero. I wouldn't recommend giving players you have never worked with narrative control because that that way lies madness i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't play this with my teenagers at the library because i mean the amount of violence that they are trying to inflict on on like it's like oh you encountered the school bully i'm expecting them to run they're like well i stab him to death and i'm like okay we have already taken a much darker turn didn't allow that to happen just really <laughs> drawing that out there but you know like uh, so I think part of this is know your players is a really big part of that. Let's say you know your players. I would maybe even discuss imp improv games. There's a lot of really great books out there. Um, I've, you know, I've got them on my shelf and I can't reach them from from where I'm at. But um, uh, any of uh, James D'Amato's books, Ultimate RPG Character Backstory Guide, Ultimate RPG Gameplay Guide, those are all really good at just kind of how to be a good player. But I think what you basically do is 
when you are going to allow your players to have some narrative control, you need to phrase your questions when you're handing that control over in a way that sort of sets both the tone and the limitations. So if you're playing Powered by the Apocalypse and your players don't get a 10 through 12, which is an automatic success, let's say they get a 7 through 9, which is a mixed success, you need to start discussing with them how it works, how it succeeds, and how it doesn't. So maybe something along the lines of, all right, that attempt didn't work out the way you wanted it to. What is something that is going to, what is a negative result that's going to happen to your player that isn't going to leave any kind of permanent damage and isn't going to negatively affect the heist, right? So what you're basically doing is saying, this is a thing that didn't work for you, but, and it's it's going to have to be negative, but it also isn't going to derail everything. And hopefully the way you phrase those questions are going to give your players enough narrative leeway that they can take it from there. Because this is how I like to play now, because it's, again, especially with Ocean's Eleven, this allows you as a game master to be surprised by where the story is going. Sure. And and these are this kind of control comes from games like For the Queen and Fiasco um, and Powered by the Apocalypse, where it does give your, your players a little bit more agency. I don't know if I'm ex- answering it exactly the way you want. And, yeah, and no, this is going to be every game master and every group is going to be a little different. Game masters, if you don't think your players can handle that kind of power, don't put them behind the wheel, right? <laughs> like there are certain players. And again, there are certain players who don't want that kind of narrative power. Right. They want to be min-max characters who, their, their stats, their math, they want to do the math more than they want to do the improv. They want to roll the dice. They want to have a dungeon. They want to fight the dragon. That is perfectly fine. And I think you can do Ocean's Eleven as a role-playing game without kind of giving them that narrative weight just easily enough. I think overall you're going to have a more fun experience if you do but you know that's up to you and your players fantastic thank you drew all right uh, i think that covers oceans 11 we talked about the movie we talked about gamification yeah i i think i mean it's like we went a little long but i feel, also feel like this this episode sort of setting a precedent for for what we're going to be looking at next um speaking of next join us in several weeks for our oceans 11 intermission episode where we're going to discuss any second opinions that we might have, anything we might have missed about the film. Uh, Traditionally, that's where we discuss the soundtrack, but we have already set that up. Um, (laughs) We have already gotten some really amazing responses online, both in email form and on social media. There's just not enough time to do that on this main episode. So we're going to save those for the intermission. There's quite a few of those. We're going to scatter draft picks. I'm going to select a system uh, that we are going to be doing that with. So there's there's a lot to be seen. Uh, and again, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. Uh, if you have opinions of your own about anything that we've discussed today, you can join in that conversation. You can email us at the never say die podcast at gmail.com. You can head over to our Facebook group, which is Never Say Die Cast. At this moment, we are still on X at Never Say Die Cast. And, you know, Rafe, this is not the only thing that is the only only podcast we have. So if you want to, and again, at the time of recording, we are four days away from the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Four days! So the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who is just in full swing. There's a ton of stuff. If you would like to hear me geek out about that, 
Uh, I can be found monthly at the Who and Company podcast and the Doctor Who podcast. Uh, and I can be found uh, intermittently on Have Not Seen This, a movie discussion podcast that needs a new episode. I've got to get on top of that. We should do that. Let's do that soon. <laughs> uh, maybe a Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> Speaking only of movies. Two Thanksgiving movies, Drew. <laughs> there's there's got to be more than that. I'm assuming Adam's Family Values is one of them. Oh, no, I didn't even think about it. Okay, there's three. Yeah. I like that one because we get to fight back. Um, Okay. Uh, The other thing too, is you want to, we discussed only a couple of movies that we've been watching. Rafe and I spend a lot of time watching movies, particularly heist movies. Uh, If you would like to see what kind of movies we're watching and you don't mind mild spoilers for things that we may discuss on this, uh, you can find us on Letterboxd. I am at uh, boy howdy. That is the letter B, the number zero, and then Y H. O W D Y boy, howdy with the first O replaced by a zero. Sorry. The regular had been taken. And I'm at town Hess. That's T A L N H E S S. Thanks to Chris talent for our wonderful theme song. And thanks to Megan Daly for our show artwork. And remember, even if in the middle of the heist, you hear this Saul, Saul bloom, never say die. Oh, my God.